Clear your mind. My mind to my mind. My mind to... Spock! Spock! What? Spock, where are you? I'm at the docking bay and you're not here. Captain, I thought we agreed to maintain a silent meditation until... There's no time for that now. Scotty says that he has the transporter back up and running. You can stop all the meditation and beam aboard now. We're all ready to get started for season two. Are you ready? Starship Therapies, one to beam up. Self, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Therapies. Its continuing mission, to explore strange inner worlds, to seek out new insights and new realizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Justine Mastin, LMFT, Yogini, writer, researcher, and captain of this particular ship. Welcome aboard. And I'm Laura Sigarski, licensed marriage and family therapist, writer, researcher, Spocky, and first officer. And I am so very unbelievably... Calm! <laughs> you, you took the words right out of my mouth, sir. Okay. Now that introductories and pleasantries are out of the way, let's get down to Ferris. I believe the earthen phrase is business, sir. Yes, exactly. Ferris. Ferris Bueller, to be exact. I'm sorry, sir. Was my response somehow lacking in enthusiasm? Sometimes. And I hate to say this, but sometimes, Spock, you can be a real Cameron. Why, sir, I'm flattered. Huh? Why, yes. After all, Cameron is the true hero of the film. If anyone is an actual hero in this film, it is beloved sister Jeannie. Shock. Oh, I know. You thought that because I am a bit of a Ferris myself, or was in my youth, that I would see him as the hero. But no, no, Mr. Vulcan. He is super problematic. Let's finish the opener, and then I'll tell you more. Friends at home, just as a reminder that just because we are therapists does not mean that we are your therapists. Unless, of course, we are your therapists. This podcast is for the purposes of education and humor and is not intended to replace seeing your own therapist. And circling back around now, sir, to what I believe you were saying, um, is that you your general take on the film at this point is that Ferris Bueller is not the hero of this, this particular slice of 80s cinema gold. No, no, Fer- Ferris is nobody's hero. Uh, and, and let me l- let me elaborate uh, just a bit, because I will have so much more to say over the course of this podcast. And I don't want to put it all out out front. You know, I don't I don't want people to listen to this first 10 minutes and then be like, mm, I got the gist. I'm out. So you really have done a lot of growing since season one and season two. Well, you know, I got a lot of really good massages. i'm sure you did sir (laughs) so here's why ferris is nobody's hero Mm -hmm. he is a terrible friend this is true this is true he is a terrible friend Mm -hmm. can you imagine spock if you came to me 
with some serious emotional family of origin stuff. Mm. And I was like, let's steal your dad's car. Yes, sir. That frankly, that sounds quite awful. Um, my father, Sarek, would never have had a Ferrari. Certainly not the garish color of red. <laughs> but he did have other things that were very important to him, like the historic Vulcan tomes. And if you had wanted to borrow those, mm -hmm. I mean, frankly, sir, I would not have allowed that to happen. But perhaps more to your point, I don't think you ever would have asked had we known each other when we were youths. Well, I mean, to be fair, I was not always the very best of friends when I was a younger human. Mm. I hadn't learned all of the things that I have now learned as an adult starship captain. So I'm, I might have, if I had reason for those Vulcan tomes, I very well might have said, take those Vulcan tomes and let's get out of here. It is difficult to imagine you wanting those Vulcan tomes. It's also difficult to imagine you carrying them on your most favorite teenage motorbike. <laughs> um, I got skills. Uh, Touche. Now, just because I'm disclosing that I wasn't always the best friend, that doesn't mean I'm letting myself or Ferris off the hook here. So I have learned these lessons. I can forgive myself. I was young. I didn't know these things. I also was not putting myself out to all young people of my generation saying, look at me, be like me, like a certain Ferris Bueller did. Right. He is decidedly fostering himself up as, at times, the sausage king of Chicago, but I think more specifically, the king of teendom. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, it, and it's all framed in this way that, like, look at me, I'm living life to the fullest because life moves fast. And I know you're going to have stuff to say about that in a bit because you have feelings about capitalism. Um. <laughs> That's true. That most antiquated of earthen systems. Mm -hmm. Right, so he's he's putting himself out there as the pinnacle of, I would say he's trying to be the pinnacle of looking like, I don't know, mindfulness? Be present. Live in the now. And uh, That's fascinating. I, I had never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. But you're right. There is a real, uh, not a je ne sais quoi. There's a real, <laughs> a real uh, quoi here, if you will. <laughs> Like, he is, he is marketing himself as not just a chill, cool guy, but, like, a guy who's figured it out via mindfulness. I mean, it reminds me of, kind of, frankly, what we're seeing presently, um, which is probably best epitomized by Gwyneth Paltrow. Never thought I'd name... Nope. Right. I never thought I'd name drop her <laughs> on the pod, but it's season two, fam. Um Right. So she, and she's out there peddling this idea of like corporate mindfulness and calm through thousand dollar sage lighting and pink crystals. And like Ferris isn't marketing crystals that we know of, um, but he definitely is marketing <laughs> this idea that like if you just would chill out, you would be fine. It's this very individualized sense of self-care that like being calm and being cool and being relaxed is well within your grasp, but just reach out and take it. And stop <laughs> being such a buzzkill, Cameron. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, because if if we're truly mindful, then we are 100% self-absorbed. That's what he's selling. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting here is I have this discussion with clients on a daily basis around what's the difference between self-care and selfishness. Mm. And I... It's so hard to point at something because it's, you know, it's a continuum, sure. right? Like there's, there you could think of it as a scale of black to white, and we're trying to be somewhere in the gray area. We just don't want to be on the ends. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't exactly a point of demarcation, which is what people want. They're like, at which point am I no longer taking care of myself? And am I just a dick? And like, I don't. I don't have a point of demarcation for that. I mean, right now what I'm thinking of is I'm thinking of, of just like a, a, a long line, like with little like markings one to 10. And on, on the one end you have Cameron, right? Mm -hmm. Like Cameron, his saddest, maybe when Ferris calls and he's like in bed, clearly suffering with some like somatic type systems or symptoms rather linked to his chronic depression. And then on the mm -hmm. other end of the scale, we have, we have good time Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Giving you, like, a solid thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, there's some stuff that Ferris is doing, and I'm like, cool, that's good self-care. You're taking a shower. You're really enjoying it. You're playing with your hair and singing into the removable shower thing. He is, well, and he's he's taking a day off, and this idea of, like, taking mm -hmm. a mental health day, while it certainly is not anywhere near being acceptable from, like, a corporate standpoint, right? Like, insurance isn't going to mm -hmm. be okay with you doing that. Um, but it's, it's starting to kind of, I think, gain momentum in our mainstream culture and definitely in our zeitgeist. Like, you could certainly make the argument that Ferris, look at Ferris. He's taking a mental health day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what is Ferris not doing? Ferris is not being honest about why he's taking the day off. Mm -mm. No. And... He's not, he's not verbalizing to normalize. He's not verbalizing to normalize. No, he's lying. He's just lying mm -hmm. and i don't have a quippy one-off for that the way i do for verbalize to normalize <laughs> lying is trying i, I got nothing <laughs> what i actually pictured sir was like um not a not a gif but like a meme of you making one of your serious patented serious faces and then mm -hmm. underneath in all caps lying with a period <laughs> to show that you disapprove of this behavior. I, li I like that a lot. <laughs> I think I'm just going to go ahead and make that. So note to self. Make my own meme. Mm. It's. I'm sure it's what the people need and want and deserve, frankly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And not, okay. So just a little bit more about Ferris and his poor friendship. Mm. <laughs> He's also not a good boyfriend. He's not a good partner. He's not a good partner, platonic, nor romantic. I mean, I think that, that you probably need to spend some time unpacking that a bit more, and I know that you will, because I think on a, <laughs> on a first glance, if you're taking a very like cursory glance of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I think it's pretty easy for folks to identify the ways that he is letting Cameron down as a friend. Mm-hmm. It's. I think it's a little bit more difficult to, to parse the way he's letting Sloane down, because it seemed like mm -hmm. Sloane seems pretty happy, she's pretty... You like up for the shenanigans? Yeah. Okay. Sure. I think she's excited to be with her partner. 
mm-hmm. you know, when when he when he gets her out of school, which that whole scene where he pretends to be her dad and then they make out in front of the principal and the principal is just like, eh, one of those families. No, yeah. no principal. You call family social services. Right. Anyway, I mean, like you can tell he's judging because he's like, so they're that kind of family. Yeah. But you're a goddamn mandated reporter. Report mandate. I mean, anyway. you know, like you were you were alive back then, sir. Things were different in the 80s, right? They were. They were very different. That People didn't make those calls. No. It had to, it had to be... Uh, it had I can't to be even tell you how bad it had to be. Pretty bad. Like, like uh, yeah, I don't want to go, like, too far here because this is, this is a friendly show. But, like, it had to be pretty gratuitous, the display, mm-hmm. for, yeah. for a, a f- things to be called. Mm-hmm. And, and, yes. you, and you really needed to probably be, like, a non-white parent also. You know, mm, like, yeah. Oh, we're going to get into so much privilege here. So much. Quite so shortly. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> as you were saying, to bring it all the way back around, you were making the point about mm-hmm. how he's not a great romantic partner either. Yes. So and the, and the scene I would use to really point at that is when they go to the baseball game, mm-hmm. which they get great seats for in the middle of the day. How much money does this kid have anyway? Um, well, I mean, hashtag, hashtag white privilege. Yeah, there's so much of it. Um, but he and Cameron are engaged in the game or their own stuff or whatever. And and Sloane's studying. She is not engaged with the game or her boyfriend. And he does not seem mm. at all to notice this very blatant social cue of her saying, I'm bored. You dragged me out of school for this. Clearly school is important to me or I wouldn't be studying. Why did you pull me out of school? Interesting. Do you know me? Do you understand me? Now, what mm-hmm. this what this reminds me of is something that um, is a is a. What would you call it? Like a, a fan theory or a conspiracy theory? Some kind of interpretation. We'll go with that. That is, it, it's a real pet interpretation of our producer, right? So mm. he really loves the fan theory that Ferris Bueller does not exist at all. And is in <laughs> fact a hallucination of Cameron's. A la Fight Club, if you will. Right? Mm-hmm. Like he's what's the guy, the Brad Pitt's character who's fake? You're talking about uh, Tyler Durden. Yes, Tyler Durden. He is like <laughs> Ferris is Cameron's Tyler Durden. They're like Cameron mm-hmm. is so depressed and so consumed by you know, some definitely some some symptoms of OCD. I don't know if we could diagnose him with that. Seems like probably his mm-hmm. dad has that though, so it could be, you know learned mm-hmm. he at least has some learned behavior characteristics so he's overwhelmed and so tightly wound as ferris would say that he has hallucinated this entire alter ego to help him let go and have fun hmm then how does sloan come into play well sloan comes into play because like you're making the point that like really the very little that we know about sloan's character it doesn't really seem like yeah, she likes to have a good time, but she does seem more studious, a little bit more serious in the vein that Cameron is, right? So if Cameron mm-hmm. is, in fact, both himself and Ferris, mm. Sloane's partnership with these two individuals makes a bit more sense. If we want to give it like a truly, what, 21st century spin that's very modern of our times, the three of them, if we want to go back to the idea that Ferris is, in fact, a... a entity in and of himself and not a hallucination or some projected 
aspect self. of self of Cameron's personality, mm-hmm. um, then you would say that these three make a polycule. I, I'm sorry, a what? A polycule. Please say more about polycules okay, for our so, listeners. So, friends, though, for those of you who don't know, like a polycule is a stable romantic relationship comprised of three or more individuals who are committed to each other both at, at, in friendship and in romance and sexual intimacy. Hmm? Mm-hmm. And, and is this all, this is not all poly relationships. This is a specific type of poly relationship. That is my understanding. Admittedly, I'm going to need to pause right here for notes from our producer, because this is something, this is a term <clears throat> with which he is more familiar than I. So Brian, so we're back. I just checked with our producer and <laughs> what he has clarified for me is that um polyamory is more like a like general term a way of being when it comes to romantic relationships polycule certainly would fall under that umbrella but what it really is looking at is groups of three or more folks who are in a committed relationship together whereas polyamory in general is this idea that you enjoy having a variety of different kinds of romantic relationships engagements and interactions with a with more than one person Mm-hmm. So like within polyamory, and I know you know this, sir, but for those of you who are not mm-hmm. as familiar, you can have a stable partnership with one person that looks on the outside to be monogamous. But in fact, both of you may be um, polyamorous. And so you engage in like other kinds of romantic and sexual relationships outside the main partnership while maintaining the main partnership. A polycule is very similar, but it involves three or more people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. What a great primer on ethical non-monogamy. We can circle back to that another time. Right. Uh- <laughs> and, and this is a great way that like, you can take media of any kind, obviously this being a film, that was very clearly created from from a more conservative mindset, right? Like, I very much doubt that John Hughes would be like, yes, that's what I was attempting to do here, friends. Show the ways that a polycule can work. But that doesn't matter. No, he's very binary. He's a binary man. Yes, very much so. And yet, you can read and interpret all kinds of things in an an expansive, multi-layered narrative, of which Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a great example. You know what I just realized? Yeah. This episode... And in fact, all episodes that will follow in its stead, when we are breaking down a piece of pop culture, we will be exploring the power of our modality, therapeutic fan fiction, and how that can be used in a person's life to understand themselves and the world around them. Oh my gosh, this is beautiful. And now, sir, we must pause for you to define this amazing term for our audience. Therapeutic fan fiction is very much what it sounds like. What we're doing, it well, if you know what therapy and fan fiction are, if you don't know what either one of those terms are, it meant nothing to you. Right. But if you did, <laughs> you, you envisioned them meeting together in a metaphorical field, seeing one another with love in their eyes and their hearts and just running across the field, smushing together. And there it is. Beauty. And... <laughs> And embracing uh-huh. and becoming a therapeutic modality. Um, so therapeutic, all that means is it has something to do with healing. 
right? Mm -hmm. In our case, uh, when we talk about therapeutic, we're usually talking about something within the therapy realm, but it doesn't have to be. A bath can be therapeutic. A walk in the woods can be therapeutic. Fan fiction, for anyone who's unfamiliar, and I find it very hard to believe that there's someone listening to this podcast for whom fan fiction is an unfamiliar concept, but... I do not know that. So right, because maybe you're listening to the you're like listening to this podcast with uh, your grandmother and she's not familiar. Mm, that is that is so true. Mm-hmm. Uh, before my mom passed, I played her some eps. That's right. She was <laughs> she was more than a little confused on a number of occasions. I was going to be like she was intrigued. And then fun story for our <laughs> listeners, she obviously had heard my voice well before she saw my face. I was unfortunately never able to meet to meet her live and in person. Justine did, however, show her my photo. There was a long pause, and then she said, "That's not how I pictured her," <laughs> in a very disapproving tone. So, I'm going to spend the rest of my life wondering what was exactly going on for her there, and how, in fact, she pictured me. I know we're never going to know. No, I didn't. I didn't follow up. With additional, well, no, I think I did. I think I was like, what did you picture? And she's like, I don't know, you know? (laughs) Right. Because any of us that listens to podcasts or radio or whatever, like we do, we have this image in our mind of what the person sounds like or what the person looks like. And I don't, it it would be hard to verbalize that. Yeah. Anyway, digression complete. Uh, Fan fiction. So fan fiction is real cool. What it is, is when a person or a number of people, a group perhaps, look at something from pop culture, let's take mm, Supernatural, and they watch these episodes and they think to themselves, hmm, well, there's just no way that Dean would have kicked Castiel out of the bunker. That's just inaccurate. Mm -hmm. I am going to put fingers to typey types and i'm gonna tap 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 that into what would be more in character for dean which would be most likely to hide kaz in the bunker Mm -hmm. and just not tell sam um and then if things turn sexy well that's just that's very much in character for everyone too Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. So the the fan fiction writer, the person who has put on their I'm going to fix it hat because you professional writers either were forced to under duress or chose to make a decision that is out of character for this particular human. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to fix it. And what Larissa and I have discovered in our work is that we can do I don't want to say literally the same thing because we're not actually typing anything. No. Uh, we're doing nearly the same thing when we're working with clients to rewrite the stories of their lives. And in addition to that, we can pull in these pop culture references to help us inform us around decisions that our clients are making or the way they're living their life. For example, if somebody's dealing with a lot of anger, Mm -hmm. we might ask them to embody the Hulk for a minute. And, you know, does this situation require the Hulk or does it require Bruce Banner? Neither's right or wrong. It's just what what does the situation require? Mm -hmm. What what have I left out of our description? I realize that was not a 30-second elevator pitch, but you know what? This is our podcast. That's right. And this is not exactly (laughs) the last time we're going to be talking about this either. 
Um, and, you know, I feel like the first time merits a bit of digression, which is what I'm just going mm -hmm. to continue, because I think that we can use Ferris Bueller to talk about what we mean when it comes to therapeutic fan fiction as well, right? If I was working with someone who was themselves in a polycule or was a polyamorous identifying individual, and they, they were expressing the feeling that, frankly, many folks do who fall into this category that I've worked with. Um, that like they don't feel like they are represented. They don't feel like they see themselves or the relationships that they have depicted in the stories that are most most common, right? Mm -hmm. And we want to see ourselves because by seeing ourselves and seeing characters that are similar to us, it helps us not just understand who we are, it helps us feel less alone. It helps mm -hmm. us feel like, oh, I'm a part of a group too. And so you can use something like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and it's, it's, it's representation of a polycule after a fashion to help that person see themselves in more mainstream culture. Even mm -hmm. though obviously that was not John Hughes's intent, there are enough elements of the polycule, polycule dynamic in the relationship between this triad that you don't actually have to do that much work to see it, identify it, and make it happen. And therapeutic fan fiction allows us to do that and then to get the healing benefits of feeling, feeling it like you are being seen and witnessed by the culture that you love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in such a popular film. Truth. Yeah. Well, and, and people from marginalized backgrounds are no strangers to fan fiction. E even if we never take fingers to tappy taps, we're constantly writing different things in our minds or imagining, mm -hmm. you know, which which characters we would like to wind up together and what, you know, what if this were true or what if this happened? Um, and for folks, you know, in the LGBTQ community, we're we're very astute at finding subtext right. because so rarely and up until quite recently was queer representation main text right so you become skilled at seeing subtext and is there a subtext of a polycule here i don't know i guess we'd have to watch it again i mean i feel pretty <laughs> certain that there is <laughs> I'm, I'm, I trust you. <laughs> I believe you saw what you saw. Exactly. Oh, all right. Well, I took us on a hell of a digression, but mm -hmm. a really important one. Yeah. No, I think all this is good. Um, bringing mm -hmm. us all the way back around, which I'm doing a lot of today, but also is very much par for the course for us here in the Starship Therapies. <laughs> is there anything more that you would want to say about Ferris Bueller, the antihero, and the ways that he fails his partner's? Both platonic and romantic, and perhaps plomantic. Mm, I should not. Mm, I shouldn't do no. it. No, you, mm. you you don't really, you don't have the portmanteau je ne sais quoi. <laughs> no, I decided You have a portmanteau quoi. Yeah, <laughs> well said, sir, well said. <laughs> uh, th those are the main things. Mm -hmm. We, in in the end of the film, we are led to believe that that Ferris and Cameron come to some sort of understanding with each other. Um, but I really, 
it feels much more like Ferris wore Cameron down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, oh, Cameron had this epiphany that he needs to chill out. Like, no, he's just, he's just so fucked at this point. Right. Like, the the car, his father's precious car is, I mean, how rich is everyone? Who who could afford that glass encasing anyway? Well, um, and I do think the, the film does a great job of, you know, making the point clearly that money does not a functional happy family make. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, one of your favorite topics. It's true. And it reminds me of something that my own therapist recently observed, which is that um, money is often, and you've said this before too, Captain, mm-hmm. that money, what it does really allow us to do is create all these kinds of buffers and barriers mm-hmm. from dealing with the problem. Mm-hmm. I think this came up for us when we were at New York City Comic Con last year, and we were talking about Kanye West. Oh, yeah. Yes. We were talking about this. We were, and I was expressing concern about Kanye West, and you were like, yeah, see, money money can really insulate you from facing all kinds of problems. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, that seems very much to be the case for Cameron and his family. Um, so this idea that money's going to save you or mindfulness to the point of navel-gazing narcissism is going to save you, these things are, are most untrue. And I think if you're really paying mm-hmm. attention when you're watching the film, perhaps paying more, paying more attention than the film merits, but we wouldn't agree with that <laughs> here in the Starship at all. <laughs> Certainly not me. I'm all about that laser focus. Um, the, these, like, these two, I think, critiques are absolutely there. And so then, yeah, you do have Cameron who's like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to face my dad. Um, Oh, it's just, it's such an unsettling scene. Mm-hmm. In part because it, it the, I mean, the movie doesn't come right out and say it, but clearly there is abuse happening for Cameron. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it only talks about, like, the verbal abuse, but it seems like there's at least some physical abuse happening. And so, like, the idea of his dad coming home and Cameron standing up to him, like, I remember as an adult when I first saw this, and I was like, my God, he's going to get pummeled. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't know what dad looks like. No. Because we don't see even a picture of dad at any point. No, which makes it even more like terrifying because you don't ever see dad. So you were just imagining mm-hmm. the ogre that is dad that Cameron's, mm-hmm. I guess, going to face. You know, it reminds me a lot of, it reminds me of Stranger Things season two when Winona Ryder's new boyfriend, who's nice but super dumb. Remember? Bob. Bob. Yes. Bob is driving... <laughs> Little, I can never remember the children's names. What's that child's name? Who's always getting which? Will yes. Uh, so Bob I'm is like, driving help me with which child you're talking Will. about. There's so, a number of children. It's fair, fair, but it's Will. And so Bob is driving Will to, to school, and like at this point, both Bob and Winona Ryder are like he's just having nightmares. Um, <laughs> ridiculous, but that's what they're thinking. Um, and so like Bob is like, you know what you got to do? You just got to face your nightmare. Just face mm. it. And as viewers, we're all like, that is a terrible idea, Bob. <laughs> Bob Samwise Gamgee. Don't do that, Will. Do not save your Bob nightmare. Bob Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> See, portmanteaus are far more your thing. Um, but it's like, you don't, you don't face, don't face the large, angry, terrifying monster, Cameron and Will. Don't do that. Mm-mm. And to your point, sir, a true friend 
wouldn't put you in a situation where you were being forced to face your abuser before you were ready. And certainly without like any supports. Because Cameron doesn't have any supports. Like Ferris just leaves. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, go get them, buddy. I gotta I gotta race home before my parents get home. Cause if they find I'm not in my bed, I'm gonna get a semi-stern, mediocre talking to. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I gotta I gotta boom bow bow out of here. <laughs> yep. And that's Ferris. Mm-hmm. And that and that's and that's Ferris. Mm-hmm. And he's just, um, he's just a, a mediocre white man mm-hmm. in Chicago. <laughs> sure. Do they live in Chicago proper or one of the suburbs? They live in one of the burbs, but they come into the city proper for mm-hmm. their little day out. Well, yeah. But you notice there are, like, no people of color. There's, like, one standing on a sidewalk but like everyone else in chicago is white which as someone who now lives in chicago i can very resoundingly say that is not the case i mean yes are there (laughs) whiter areas of chicago sure just like there are jewisher areas of chicago and more mexican areas of chicago more african-american areas of chicago yes that's true and Mm -hmm. you're not gonna find a street like the street that you see in Ferris Bueller's Day Off in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Right. Or the German Fest, the Oktoberfest. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we have Oktoberfest. I feel like Polish Fest would have been more in keeping with the city. But, you know, I think the German culture has always been a bit more mainstream in America. Was it actually an Oktoberfest? Because if so, that timing is not right. <laughs> okay, friend. So, um... You were correct. It is. It is Von Steuben Day. <laughs> um, which does not. And the internet is very much with you um, in noting that it, that was uh, in, inaccurate to include the Von <laughs> Steuben Day parade when it is oh. clearly not in September. I, I, feel, I feel real vindicated. Whew. Okay. I feel like I shared a lot. I feel I feel good. I feel heard. Um, I also feel like I've been talking nonstop for quite a while. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts and feelings mm. on this blessed gem of my youth. It is certainly a wonderful film. And and I do mean that genuinely. And it's not just because the first film that you ever had me watch from your youth um, that I did specifically for the podcast was Gremlins. <laughs> Though I think it's always important to bring that up, not just because bringing up Gremlins is, is a good chuckle, um, but also <laughs> as a reminder of just how low the, the bar was. <laughs> it was a different time. It was. It was a, mm-hmm. it was a different, it was a unique time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd go back and visit for a day, not, not to stay. Um, but to visit, a visit would be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So when we were first sort of talking about this episode and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, one of the things that we noticed is that you and I were coming from slightly different approaches in our critique, right? You very much were taking more mm-hmm. of that kind of personal psychological approach. And I was taking more of the sociological systemic approach. Mm-hmm. 
And I definitely think the characters in and of themselves seem to be representing larger groups slash larger systems. Like Ferris is obviously very representational of a certain kind of white upper middle class heteronormative male privilege. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I'm trying to imagine an argument against that, and gosh, I just can't think of one. Um, <laughs> but Twitter might be able to. So if you, if, you have a, if you have a real beef about that, let me know. At Spox All Years. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have, you have Cameron, who is what? Like the softer side of, of white privilege? You know, like he very much is the shadowy side of this coin like he's he is Mm -hmm. very much a representation of the negative impact that privilege can have on you um Mm -hmm. unlike ferris he's not really able to fit into the heteronormative white male archetype in a way that is resonant with who he is as a human being he's getting a lot of pressure from from dad from patriarchy to conform and it you see the ways that it is breaking him down Mm -hmm. absolutely mentally physically um, and then we have Jeannie, who's like a great representation of maybe like second wave feminism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she's solid second wave. Mm-hmm. Where she's like, her frustration with her brother, which the entire film she struggles to articulate and never quite does. Um, though I do, it's making me think of that great sort of like shot in and like she's standing in the all white hallway. And it's the camera slowly veering in on her. And she's she's like, why am I so mad at Ferris? I mean... Sure, he mm-hmm. got a computer, but I got a car. <laughs> Which is, isn't it? Like, it's, that is a great moment that is emblematic of not just second wave feminists, but I think, like, one of the issues that white feminists have to sort of deal with and grapple with, because we do have certain privileges. They mm-hmm. are not the same as our, white male, as our white male counterparts, and we are certainly oppressed by this system but it's a kind of oppression that's tricky because we are treated good enough right like ram enough ram enough i see you those folks who know this reference we're not going to give it to you though if you don't um it's from riverdale (laughs) oh that okay fair i don't think we ever explained ram enough yeah but you, you see the riverdale if you're watching the Riverdale, <laughs> but I, that maybe is a little bit too in the weeds. I'm getting a little a too James Joyce for my own good, which is bad because I don't really like James Joyce. Anyway, <laughs> oppression for white women within our current system is such that it is it is nice enough for many of us that I think it's easy to forget that we are oppressed. There's a lot of camouflage mm-hmm. happening. And the camouflage yes. is clearly impacting Jeannie because she's very frustrated with her brother and the inconsistent ways that she is treated versus the way he's treated by their parents, by their school, by the entire community that's like, save Ferris. She knows there's something wrong, but she spends the entire film struggling to articulate what it is. And I would argue never quite gets down to it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, because she's just like, I need to prove he's lying. I don't know why. Right. I just do mm-hmm. there is something about this that bothers me and you're right Jeannie. there is something inherently not okay about what's going on here mm-hmm. it it is not normal what is happening here it is not normal that your classmates send you a stripogram when you're sick like it's it's not normal that that you are a person of such status that everybody is talking about you and 
she knows it doesn't feel right. Oh my god, you know what this just made me think of? What? Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> please, please say more about that. And and Budicek, but I don't remember Budicek's first name. Um, just call him Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. Yeah, Pete Budicek and, uh, and Beto O'Rourke. It reminds me of them because here's the thing. Do these do these two <laughs> fellas have some good ideas? Sure, fine. But from a systemic standpoint, I think part of the reason that people are so willing to flock to them is because we've had this idea of the white knight. Mm. The white savior who's attractive and unoffensively sexy. Who's going to ride in and save us from whatever the disaster is. A dragon, Mm -hmm. global warming, an anal retentive principle. (laughs) And, and yes, and these, these individuals, they are benefiting from this, this social archetype. Mm -hmm. It has little if nothing to do with their merits as presidential candidates it has everything to do with the fact that they are just they just so happen to be born in a body that kind of matches what we tend to think of you know good leaders looking like mm-hmm. and yes i know some of you might be like wait a minute spock mayor pete is gay and that's true but he's a particular kind of gay in his presentation that is that's real his husband is handsome mm-hmm. they present handsomely together they're like a white knight slinked arms right they're not in a polycule that we know of. that we know of and that's my point they're not being public about whether or not they're in a polycule mm-hmm. they are presenting themselves in a themselves in a very particular kind of way to fit a social norm mm-hmm. and And like, to a certain extent, I get that because again, like some of what we've talked about in our fabulous Game of Thrones summer episode is the ways that we are all affected by systemic pressures. Mm -hmm. And clearly this is showing up for Mayor Pete. So while we can certainly have great empathy for the constraints that Mayor Pete, Cameron, heck, even Ferris Bueller are under, it's all, it's very important to understand the influence that these systemic pressures are having on these individuals and also the ways that they're influencing our own perception of these individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember very vividly as a younger person watching, watching this film when I, you know, I was a very different Kirk then. You were. Um, and I, re- I identified with Ferris. I wanted, I wanted to be that kind of rabble rouser, which... I mean, I get to be that kind of rabble rouser, but with a better agenda, I think, mm-hmm. um, than just like live free or die, um, <laughs> which seemed to I kind mean, of be Ferris's opinion. Right. It, uh, now that brings me to Die Hard, another great <laughs> film, because um, I thought you would be like live free or die hard. And then in my head, I was like, that doesn't totally fit with what we're talking about here. Um <laughs> Ferris is definitely the live free part of that phrase mm-hmm. for sure. He he's light yeah. on the die hard. Cameron yeah. is standing for the die hard in his own yeah. way. Well, and I remember being like, "Oh, Jeannie's the worst." You know, "Oh, she, you know, she's such a downer mm-hmm. and she's a she's bitchy and all this stuff." And what I didn't realize was that I, 
I, you know, I was not steeped in in feminism, even though my mother swears that she did that. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes people have different perceptions of the way they were showing up. Yeah, that is so real. Um, but I, I didn't, what I didn't understand was Jeannie is just trying to live her life within the constraints of th- this societal pressure to be everything to everyone. Mm-hmm. And really, she just wanted to be a 16 or a 17 year old girl who goes to school and doesn't have to live in the shadow of her handsomer brother. Right. And she was probably also in her own way beginning to grapple with the realization that she was always going to be in the shadow of a handsomer, sexier, dude, white mm-hmm. dude. Yeah. And her way of responding to that is to fight against it. Mm-hmm. Sloane's way of dealing with it is to ally with it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I am going to wear the butteriest leather jacket. With the fringiest fringe. And I'm going to lean into it. Mm-hmm. because. And you know what? That's fair. Right. Because it it is hard to fight against systemic oppression. It is. And I, I, I fault no one for feeling like it's just easier to not. Like, I'm just I'm just going to lean into it. Mm-hmm. You know what? It's not worth the struggle until until they can, are able to see it for what it is. For all we know, Sloane hasn't even seen the Matrix here. You know, she's still in her own Westworld construct. No, it very much seems like she's she's pretty she's pretty deep into the Matrix, but she's starting to wake up, you know, like the beginning of mm-hmm. the Matrix when when Neo's looking around and he's feeling very disquieted, but he doesn't know why. Mm hmm. And Keanu Reeves expresses that disquietude in the way that he expresses most emotions, at least during the 1990s, <laughs> which is to say he's the equivalent of a long pause. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad Keanu is back in a big way. I'm, I'm here for it. Oh, I am 100% here for it. Um, this is a major digression, but it's happening anyway, folks. Uh, did you get a chance to see the basically two-person film that is, it's like Getaway, oh, the Away Wedding? God, I'll I'll put it in our liner notes here, friends. But it's basically a film about a destination wedding. Maybe it's called Destination Wedding, starring Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder, and they have the only speaking parts. No. Um, many people hated it. I mm-hmm. have the unpopular opinion of saying that I really enjoyed it. I think mm. you might enjoy it too. All right. I mean, I like both those people. Yeah, they're real great together. Eh, noted. It's very much like a like a two anti-heroes coming together. Mm. I like it and being bitter. So, I think some people thought that it was going to be a film about two heroes coming together and having a sweet romance. That was not the case. I don't know why you would look at Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder and be like, yeah, a sweet romance. Like, (laughs) Winona did Autumn in New York. It was a bad choice. She's learned. (laughs) Okay. So this is, Uh, this is really, we've gotten very off topic. Let's bring it on home. I, 
as we're starting to wrap things up, I think we would be remiss if we didn't take just a couple minutes to talk about Principal Edward R. Rooney. And did I remember all of that in my head? Yes, I did. Did I also look it up on Wikipedia to make sure I was right? Yes, I did. Was I right? Yes, I was. <laughs> 10,000 points for Ravenclaw. Yay! It doesn't hurt that it's your house, too. No. Oh. So uh, so I know what I could say about him individually, but I'm curious, uh, what, what role would Rooney be in your sociological mm. metaverse that you have created here? The, like the middle management enforcer. Ooh. Yeah. And what's, what is the function of the middle management enforcer? Um, Why do they exist? They, they exist to maintain the status quo. And they very much um, are participating in this, the, the, the myth of bootstrapping, which is that you can work hard enough to become a great man. And yet they are also emotionally disillusioned by this because they've worked hard and they know that they're not going to become the great man. Right? Like mm -hmm. Rooney, if he was ever cool, his days of coolness are far behind him. Mm -hmm. And he looks at Ferris, who has all this hope in his heart of attaining that white knighthood that he never could quite attain, and he feels such rage. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, like, I like that view, because it, it does seem strange that the principal is this invested mm -hmm. in this one kid skipping school. Right. Right? Like, he's been absent nine times. Is that a lot? I guess for some kids. I guess I God. skipped school all the time. Right. Like I was gonna say, like kids that I knew in high school had like real truancy problems. Like nine times was just that was small, small potatoes, <laughs> your friends. Right. Yeah. I mean, what what suburb is this? Right. That this is your this is your problem, kid. Mm -hmm. No, it really does. It like Ferris is such he's such an emblem of like the white male privilege hero, which is inherently problematic and you see the ways like everyone is grappling with the problematic elements of this and everybody has a different response to it um mm -hmm. and it though though they cling to it in the film as we continue to struggle with whether or not we're going to cling to it now in our modern age um it does seem pretty clear that it's it's part of a greater system that just is not working mm -hmm. like like capitalism itself, right? Like capitalism in its pure, it undiluted form, <laughs> it doesn't work. Could parts of it work? Sure. That's fine. Mm -hmm. We can, but, but treating it as if it is, it's going to be this almost like godlike system or entity that's going to save us from everything. I mean, we know where it's gotten us and it's gotten us to where we are right now and the planet's dying and there are all these different, like, there's, there was that huge earthquake in California that lasted a long time. Someone was telling me there were, like, what, ice storms in Mexico. It's, like, raining chronically in the Midwest. And literally someone said to me yesterday, they were like, huh, I just wonder why this is happening. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Uh-huh. And I was like, really? You wonder why this is happening? Well, I mean, that that is that is a level of denial, but has created its own like barricade with soldiers. Yes. Good metaphor, sir. I love a barricade with soldiers metaphor. So let's go to the end of the film, which is a disquieting Keanu Reeves ending, if there ever was a disquieting Keanu Reeves ending. <laughs> yeah, it, what's so hard about it 
is that we have been led to root for Ferris. And so we want him to beat his dad's car home so that he he doesn't get caught. The worst thing would be if Ferris got caught, mm-hmm. which is to get a little meta so gross. Mm-hmm. Like that that is absolutely not the worst thing that happened today. Much worse things happened today. Um yeah uh, but, you know, we're rooting for him to get home. We are. And it does. I just I want to pause and, and name again. Like, And this is where you see the impact of systemic influence. Because we mm-hmm. have all been brought up in a society where we need to protect the leader. Yeah. Like, Ferris is our leader. Sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's, you know, misbehaved. Maybe he hasn't really checked for consent. Maybe he's done some really shady things, if you think about it. Maybe he's not a very good friend. Maybe he's manipulative and abusive, narcissistic. But you know what? He's our leader. Right. So we got to protect him. Mm-hmm. And and in the end, I mean, Jeannie doesn't rat him out. No. She She's like, you know what? She's a good handmaiden. Oof. That's dark. Yeah, it was. But, you know, in the end, she's like, no, you know what? Rooney's the real enemy here. Middle management is the true enemy to my second wave feminism. That's fascinating, because that also, now that I'm thinking about it, not only is it middle management, but Rooney is also, he's probably not like, he's not white trash exactly, but he's poorer. There's some class elements going on here, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, let's turn against the less wealthy, poor adjacent, less educated, mm-hmm. less sexy white dude. Oh, yeah. And now we have a gateway into talking about the ways the Republican Party for decades has worked to pit poor white people against poor black people to maintain their hold of the South. <laughs> That's Starship Therapies, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I kind of I kind of love ripping apart media this way. Because whether or not this was the intention of John Hughes, mm. and I would argue it was not. I would agree. Um, that shit is all there to be inferred. Mm-hmm. And it is this stuff we want to keep? Because I truly, I used to love this movie. Mm-hmm. I told you, I had it on a loop, on a VHS tape. I would watch it every day I skipped school. Um, <laughs> that was a lot of days. And <laughs> way more than nine here, people. The captain was so missing many more than nine. way more than nine. And, and I want to be clear that I do not endorse that. Mm-mm. That did not work out well for me. No, it was hard. It was very hard, and I I was definitely not set out on the right footing from an educational standpoint. Just because I have a master's degree, don't think that was a fast and easy process. Anyway, <laughs> I used to love this, and then, um, you know, I watched it later in life, and I was like, huh, all these question marks. And then what really brought this to a new lens for me, Mm -hmm. which, you know, this is why we need to be around people who question our Westworld construct. 
because we can't always see it ourselves. Um, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the other thing that I do called Yoga Quest, um, it's, a, it's a narrative style of yoga, and sometimes I'll even write a full script based on something from pop culture to which I insert yoga poses. It's kind of like Simon Says or a drinking game. And sometimes you can catch me and uh, Spock doing that out at conventions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not not right this minute. No, but, not right you know, now. Sometimes. But, you know, fun fact, Spock is very flexible. Yeah, yeah fun fact, it happens. Uh, but an- another one of my teachers wrote the script for Ferris Bueller. And it was just full of, I mean, this... Uh, this teacher happened to be a like very strong socialist-minded person, and it's just all about how awful capitalism is and the, all the white privilege stuff. And like, there's just and as I was reading it, I was like, "Oh my god, you're right!" Like, I knew there was this question mark, but I could sort of like genie. Mm-hmm. I knew there was this question mark, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it, and I needed to see it articulated and go, "Oh my god." Yes, you're right. There can't not be black people in Chicago. Right, right. That That's not real. And you know, that, that, perhaps that's part of why in, in your more adult years, Jeannie has resonated for you so much. Mm-hmm. Because your ultimately kind of like your journey was like matched hers at certain points. Mm-hmm. You have surpassed her. We don't really know what happened to Jeannie. Hopefully she figured it out. Hard to know. Um, she married Agent Coulson. What? Jennifer Grey. She married that actor. Oh. And she got a nose job. Yeah, that made me very sad. Yeah, it was... She said it was for sinus reasons, but... I feel dubious about that. But you know what? Now I'm hating on what another woman can do with her mind and body. And so now that feels icky. So you know what? I redact that. Or I retract it. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Grey, I hope it made you happy. That's all that matters. Yes. Okay. Whew. Let's wrap it up. Yeah. We talked about many things. Before we wrap it up, I have a note from our producer, however. um, Okay. Who would like me to offer the dissenting opinion on John Hughes, which is (laughs) that he would argue that John Hughes was more aware, perhaps not of the, like the polycule element, but maybe perhaps <laughs> more of um, these like sociological class-based issues that one might think. Clearly, there were some issues as it pertained to representation of ethnicities created races outside whiteness. Um, but yeah, our producer wanted to put that out there and also draw the parallel between one Leo Tolstoy, who seriously yeah no can this was can we not get through an episode <laughs> without dead russians <laughs> not right now i'm really i'm taking a deep dive um on <laughs> on dead russians as some of our listeners probably know because that's what i did with my summer um leo tolstoy was a is, was a very problematic figure way more problematic than i think mainstream historians are really willing to grapple with um, but in much the same way that like both like Leo and John, very conservative, maintained a lot of conservative values well into their adulthood, and yet in their art, grappled with the nuances of that. And it is unclear, based on their art, where they came down on things. Certainly in their lives, 
they tended to be far more conservative, but their art is far more ambiguous. Hmm. Um, before I hit up the many terms that we referenced today, what, what do you envision people walking away with here, sir? There's so much to walk away with. There is, there's so much to walk away with. I, um, I think for this episode and those to come, because spoilers, we're going to start doing one movie uh, a month. Yep, one movie per month, uh, where we're going to do this sort of deconstruction, as well as pulling out themes that may help you with your life or may help you figure out how to pull apart the media that you love. Um, so what what we're hoping that you take away is the, the skills for how to do that and uh, pulling out particular themes that that resonate. So for this we had we had themes of of friendship and romantic love, um, themes of systemic privilege and systemic inequality. Um, we also had family of origin issues, um, including abuse. So wow, that's a lot of stuff in Ferris Bueller's day off. Right. Yeah, and just to kind of put Put uh, I don't know, not a period, but a closing thought to your beautiful summary there, sir, would be mm-hmm. that there is so much going on in the media that we're consuming. Sometimes I think more than we're able to give it credit for. And so if mm-hmm. you, like us, enjoy taking a closer look at films from childhood, stories from childhood, present things you're loving right now, like, you know, Riverdale... Mm-hmm. We support and even encourage that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a lot of hating on the internet around, oh, you know, don't read so much into this. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't, you know, don't think so hard about it. But the thing is, we are taking all of this in. And whether we're processing it on our conscious level, we are bringing it in on our unconscious level. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what that shit is that I'm bringing in on my unconscious level. Right. So... Go boldly into deconstructing mm-hmm. your fan narratives. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, what are some of the things we talked about today? All right, we talked about a lot. These are the highlights. Uh, therapeutic fan fiction. We talked about mindfulness. We talked about depression and some of the somatic symptoms that um, can be related to depression. We talked about white privilege, family of origin, abusive relationships, polyamory, polycules. Second wave feminism. Did I miss anything? That that feels like everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and fandoms, obviously, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but also Supernatural got to mention. The Riverdale, Hulk. the Hulk. You know, the big ones. <laughs> <laughs> and dead Russians. We like to like bring on some OG fandoms. <laughs> For those of yeah. you like me who really are getting into the dead Russians. Yeah, where are my where are my Tolstoidians at? Or what do you call yourselves? <laughs> Is there a fandom nickname? No, but we should definitely come up with one. We may be at the helm of this ship, but we know who really keeps us running. 
Thank you to Ensign Kyle Rebar, who composed our theme song. Thank you to Lieutenant Catherine Mandicat Duthie, who designed our beautiful cover art. And finally, thank you to our fabulous producer, Lieutenant Commander Brian Therens, the Sausage King of Chicago. Your table's ready! Join us for our next app on New Year, New You, The Wire, and The Good Place. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And the very best way you can support our podcast is to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And please be sure to tell your friends. And as always, live long and and prosper. prosper. It is not normal. (laughs) I will just... Start that over. <laughs> See, um, Brian, this is a great reason why we should post live feeds or the raw footage for Patreons because they would love to see Spock hit her head on the, <laughs> the, on the microphone. Boom mic. Or like, what is this thing called? My buffer? <laughs> <laughs>